The collapse of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange has put the influence of a previously obscure philosophical movement into the spotlight. Company's CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, was a leading advocate for and a financial sponsor of the effective altruism movement. What is effective altruism and how did it influence his decisions? What can we say about that? Is the effective altruist movement just a cynical ploy by tech titans to extend their power? Or is the problem something else? Is it that many people, too many people, are actually taking seriously what this philosophy is about? Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Elon Jerno. Joining me today is my colleague, Ben Baer. Hi, Ben. Hi, Elon. So I thought the place to start is to set some context for the scandal around FTX and then to draw out the connections with effective altruism. So just as context for people, this has been in the news. So some of this may well be familiar to people, but just for the sake of setting a common ground, in uh, November 8, there was a run on deposits at FTX. And that led uh, the CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, to... To, to resign and, and the company's sort of now, I think it's in, in um, chapter 11 uh, bankruptcy filings. And there's real uh, concern and, and there's an investigation now into what actually happened. It's a very complex financial situation. We're gonna to try to unravel what uh, all the claims are, but the, the gist that I think is important to get here is that Sam Bankman-Fried is alleged to have mishandled the the finances of investors, moving it from one company to another and collateralizing some of what his operations, uh, the operations of, of FTX with uh, sources that he shouldn't be doing that. And the outcome was so far, it seems like the deposits uh, uh, amounting to eight to $10 billion have been lost. So this is investments of individuals and companies who put their, their wealth into this cryptocurrency exchange. And it, as far as it can be ascertained, it looks as if it's all gone up in smoke. So he's been indicted. I think that was uh, last week or earlier this week, he was arrested in the Bahamas and brought in on charges of wire fraud. And there's gonna be an, probably a significant, significant SEC investigation and, and ch charges filed against him. So there's a lot of questions here about what he was doing. Was he gambling with people's money? Was he doing something that he thought was legal? Let's put that, let's put that in the brackets and talk about what ha this has really surfaced, which is this isn't only a story of the collapse of a major financial company, which is a significant story. And that's not to make any uh, light of that, but it's also the story of the philosophic movement that Sam Bankman-Fried was so closely associated with. So he was an active philanthropist and he apparently he distributed at least a hundred million dollar to philanthropy through his ventures. And he apparently he lived a very meager existence. If you've seen him on stage, he, I don't know if this was part of the meager existence or not, but he tended to dress down the picture you're seeing on the screen right now. It seems like he, someone, urged him to dress up, but he typically looked like a homeless person from my, my impression of him. He did not seem to take his uh, appearance that significantly. And I think the most significant aspect of his association with effective altruism that, uh, that has leapt out at me is this idea of earning to give. So the idea, and we can talk more about how he came to accept this view, 
is that he was encouraged into a path to work in this field in finance on the idea that he could earn many more, uh, he could earn millions of dollars, maybe billions of dollars, which apparently he did for a while, and do so for the sake of giving it away. So he could have more impact by going into this field than if he, say, he went into being an advocate uh, for animal rights, which apparently was something he was interested in. So it seemed like he was really significantly influenced by effective altruism. We're going to dig into that. And I want to just now throw it back to you, Ben, and maybe you can tell us a bit more about how he came to choose finance as a career, the role of effective altruism in that. Yes, well, the, the really interesting story that all of the different accounts of his life are now telling is that it's not just that he uh, read in a book somewhere about this earning to give idea. It's, it's that he actually had a meeting with uh, effective altruist philosopher, William McCaskill, uh, who's lately been known for popularizing this philosophy. He, he knew him at some point in school and he was telling him about how he wanted to go into some kind of animal welfare career. And McCaskill said, you know, you could do a lot more good if you used your brain to figure out a way to make lots of money and then contribute the money to effective altruist causes, including the ones that McCaskill himself ended up working for. So it's, it's a, there's a non-accidental connection there between his life choices and the philosophy of this movement. Uh, he's, he's not just somebody who's kind of on the edges of it, he's, he's in the center of the movement, not just as somebody who practices uh, what effective altruists preach, but as someone who's then donating lots of money back to these effective altruist causes. And so what is, what is effective altruism? Well, we'll talk more about McCaskill's particular spin on it later, but uh, the essence of the idea is not simply earning to give, although that is a big component of it. It's, it's the idea that we need to uh, use reason and evidence to determine the most effective way of achieving the greatest amount of good. Uh, making lots of money to give it away is part of that strategy for a lot of people, but the, it, it's not just giving it away to any cause. The, the idea is, uh, well, there's, this is effective altruism. The implication is there's been a lot of ineffective altruism that's the idea that, uh, well, you have some money, you give it away to causes that make you feel good. If there's some symphony orchestra that you like, you get to put your name on a wing of your college. You're probably, people can spend a lot of money doing that, but the critique of the effective altruists is this doesn't really actually accomplish a lot of good by their standards in the world. There's all these starving people and uh, you could, for just dollars a day, save many, many lives rather than giving to a feel-good cause that maybe popularizes your name. This is an idea that was really originally popularized by Peter Singer, uh, the Australian philosopher. We'll come back to talking about him later too. Uh, and Singer's view is very much the idea that uh, you shouldn't be concerned with your local, narrow, uh, narrowly conceived charitable interests, people in your community, uh, you should be figuring out like how can you spend, how can you buy mosquito nets to uh, prevent the spread of malaria in third world countries where for just uh, dollars a day you can buy a bunch of nets that, that will save a lot of lives. Um, likewise with famine aid and his, there's his famous book Famine, Affluence and Morality, which is a book that he writes in the 70s on the occasion of a major famine occurring in uh, at the time East Bengal because of a hurricane. 
and uh, he's sitting in his uh, ivory tower in 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 Oxford and and thinking, shouldn't I be shouldn't I be doing? I, I'm living a relatively rich existence, and these people are suffering. How can I how can I feel justified if I'm not giving away a significant chunk of of my income? And so that is a view that begins to pick up steam in the 70s. Uh, Singer has become more of a popular public intellectual in the last, I think, 10 years or so. And what then happens is you get a, a new sect of the effective altruist movement. Uh, and this is the one that McCaskill starts to popularize called long-termism. And long-termism is the idea that if you're really using science and evidence to figure out how to do the most good. Uh, and here you have to remember the effective altruists are typically what they call utilitarian. So they think that morality consists in achieving the, the best consequences for the most people understood in terms of a total amount of happiness. And if you're really interested in, 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 in figuring out what it takes to have consequences for the best happiness for the greatest number of people, well, the place you have to look is to the distant future, because that's where most of the people are going to be. Uh, most of human history has not been written yet, and there will be trillions upon trillions of human beings in the future who will be affected by our actions. And so if you're truly thinking in effective altruist terms, truly thinking about the most effective way to help the most people over the course of history, well, then it's not enough even to think about the kinds of things that Singer is worried about. The, the misfortunes that strike uh, uh, people on the other side of the planet due to some famine or hurricane are a mere ripple in the pond of human history. What you should really be worried about, according to the long-termists, is, and here I give a list of things of, uh, uh, which strike many people as absurd, but this is what long-termists think we should worry about. Artificial intelligence, will it take over? Will it manipulate our values? Uh, will it be like Skynet in, in, uh, in, in, the, in the movie with the, with the Terminator. Uh, that seems like an exaggeration, but it's not far off from what they say. A lot of uh, long-termists are concerned with pandemic preparedness, and especially after uh, COVID-19, they, they make a lot of hay of the fact that, hey, we weren't getting ready for this pandemic, and, and here it was, and it, it killed millions of people. Now, the, the dirty secret of the aid that they've been given, they've been giving to pandemic preparedness is, that they're not so much worried about pandemics like COVID-19, uh, which uh, cause a lot of sickness and death in the near term. They are worried about the one in a million Andromeda strain that could, that could cause human extinction some millennia uh, from now. And, and just so that we're clear on this, like we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with Dr. Amish Adalji, who's a pandemic preparedness expert, and he's He's told me that the way that uh, long-termist effective altruist funding has been received in the pandemic preparedness community has really distorted the kinds of priorities that they focus on because there's a lot less priority being given to the, to the realistic kinds of pandemics that we have to be worried about, such as, such as COVID. But it gets stranger than that. Uh, there is the view that if you're really concerned with maximizing the total amount of happiness in the very, very long term, well, uh, where are all the people in the future going to be living in? Well, of course, outer space. And so uh, we need to uh, figure out how to colonize outer space so that there can be this expansion of human consciousness uh, all over the cosmos. And 
There are even some of them, though McCaskill himself doesn't make as big a deal of this, but there are some who say the, 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 the holy grail is to work for the point where there's a, a evolution of a superhuman digital being uh, who in its various computerized digital forms will occupy the universe and uh, uh, experience uh, levels of happiness un incalculable to us mere mortals. So the, the overall idea here is the future is very large. That's the, that's the catchphrase they often use. The future is large. Uh, large in terms of number of people we expect to exist over time. That means a total amount of uh, happiness that can be maximized or a total amount of suffering that can be avoided. They're worried about this potential hell on earth or heaven in the stars, take your pick. Usually it's the hell on earth that they're worried about. There's a motivation by fear component. And yeah, these kind of apocalyptic scenarios that they talk about seem far-fetched to us. The odds seem really small, but well, when you do the math, uh, even something that has a very small chance of happening, if the payoff is very high or the uh, losses are very great, uh, then the expected value, the probability times the payoff is still relatively high and something that you should worry about. And that's, uh, some people have argued that it's this kind of mentality about expected value that's responsible for some of the risk-taking uh, that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried may have been engaging in because, well, even if there's a 49% chance that his financial bet is going to lose and he's going to lose his fortune and a bunch of people today are going to lose their fortune, if there's a 51% chance that it's going to help us avoid the apocalypse or usher in heaven in the stars, it, that's a gamble that you might actually want to take. So Ben, there's, there's been a lot of discussion around both effective altruism, but specifically this, what you described as the sect of long-termism that McCaskill has been popularizing and that Sam Bankman fried is associated with. I want to talk a bit about what some of the diagnoses or criticisms of it are, because I think they're interesting. I just want to flag here, and it's something we'll come back to. I'm, I have a very strong negative reaction to this concept of earning to give, and I think there's something really revealing about what this doctrine is that and it, it should conjure in, in your mind, I think people who are new to this, the kind of... Uh, mentality that is called for under religion. I think is, there's something really strongly religious about this idea that your job is to, in effect, martyr yourself. Because when you make this really personal, what would it look like for you to follow in the footsteps of Sam Bankman-Fried and earn to, to, to give? What does it really mean? So you choose a career, not because you like it, but because you can maximize your earning potential, even if you hate every minute of it. Okay, think about that. And then not so that you can benefit from it and have whatever uh, material luxuries you want out of that, but so that you can then hand it off to other people to do something with. And so you are in effect a vessel for other people's good. Where are you in all this? And I just want to plant that as a seed for us to come back to, because I think there's a lot to talk about here. And I, I want people listening to think about that as we talk about what this idea is, just process that, think about it personally and what your reaction to it is, because I think it'll help you think through some of the implications. All right, so let's get back to the, 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 the debate around this or the diagnoses of long-termism. And I should, I should mention that you and some of our colleagues did a discussion around McCaskill's book when it was uh, not, not long after it came out. 
I don't want to recapitulate everything you guys did. I recommend that people go listen to that. Uh, I think it was in September, the end of September, and you can find that on YouTube and on our podcast stream and on New Ideal on our website. But just to give sort of a flavor of what some of the concerns are that you guys brought up, and then we can talk a bit more about some of the other criticisms that people have. So a few things you guys mentioned, which I think are worth putting out there. Uh, the idea that we should be concerned with future generations, well, that seems strange because um, we didn't need to be taken care of by previous generations. So wh why is there a concern about people who haven't existed yet? Um, the AI concerns about the robots taking over or the AI sort of dominating our lives. I, I think there the issue is there's a lot of thinking needed about what counts as intelligence and what are the real fears. Now, people I've talked to about AI do have concerns about what AI can, what its potential is, but it, the way they think of it is it's, we don't know. And it's not yet something that you can contrive a story around and, and sort of uh, figure it out. But you should also be aware that it's people create AI and then people are aware of where it's going and they can step in. So it's, it's not obviously a, a, uh, uh, a cascade effect. And just one other thing here is the, I think this big part of the discussion last time you guys were talking about this, that the philosophy underlying this, the whole idea of altruism, so bracket effective versus ineffective. Let's just talk about the altruism part of this. What does that look like and what, uh, how should you think of it? And this is that it's taken for granted in this whole debate. It's, yeah, this is fine. Now let's debate what's effective versus ineffective, what the time scale is, what the, well, but why take it like that? And I think this is where Ayn Rand's philosophic framework is really powerful because that is one of the major things she challenges that you cannot take altruism as a given and far quite the opposite. She, she thinks of it as, and we'll talk more about this as, as, destructive as a moral theory. It's not even a moral theory. It doesn't give you guidance. It, it leads to destructive ends. So that's just by way of, of sketching in some of what you guys talked about in the previous, and, and you know, jump in if you want to add other aspects. But I want to flag here some of what has come up in the discussions of long-term uh, effective altruism as, as a, a view now with the scandal around Sam Bankman-Fried and, and a couple of threads here is, and keep in mind that these are people who are taking for granted that altruism is a good idea. And so what they're saying is, okay, given that that's a good idea, well, the problem is that why are you so concerned with the future and not with what's happening right now? What about, you know, the thing about, there's a, a quote um, in an article we both read that, so people sitting up in a skyscraper in San Francisco thinking about, 3,000 years from now, and when you go downstairs to the street level, there are people shooting up drugs and the city is decaying rapidly. It's a, it's, it's a war zone, something. Why aren't you paying attention to that? Uh, so that's good. There's a kind of heartlessness about it. So you can't really be an altruist if this is your view. That's, that's the kind of criticism that's coming up. And then the other kind of thing, the other thread that comes up, and we should, we'll, we'll dig into this as well, which is, well, it's, isn't this doctrine really an ends justify the means kind of perspective? What will it not allow you to do? Uh, if, if you're trying to maximize uh, uh, total happiness or total positive experiences, have you couch it, what does it not allow for? And doesn't it, couldn't it justify really bad behavior uh, in the future? Uh, so 
that's just by way of some context. Let's dig into some of the diagnoses that you've run across, Ben. Yeah, Elon, you mentioned that most of the criticisms that you just gave are given by people who who assume that altruism is a good thing and that and therefore uh, what they're trying to do is to criticize what's called effective altruism, especially the long-termist kind, as not really being altruistic in the way that they hope that it would be. Uh, respect, regardless of, of uh, the stated intentions of the, uh, of the practitioners, and we're gonna get back to that later. Uh, and so when they try to figure out, well, what went wrong? Why has effective altruism turned into this concern with these really wacky sci-fi scenarios? Here are the kind of explanations they come up with, and it's it. I think I've pretty much got an exhaustive list of explanations they propose here. Uh, one is the kind of cynical explanation: these guys don't really mean it; they don't really believe in altruism. They're just trying to play around with their pet, pet sci-fi interests. I mean, it's it's you know not an accident that there's a lot of tech guys who are worried about tech problems like AI, and that's just their nerdy interest, which they kind of will uh, uh, frame with uh, altruistic framing to get people interested in it and to justify the amount of money that they're spending on it. Uh, there's the allegations of just plain duplicity. They're, they're not even trying to uh, do some kind of cool scientific experiments. It's that they just want to accumulate wealth and power and they can justify their wealth and power by showing how altruistic they're being uh, by contributing to these causes. And I think that you know the, this this kind of cultural movement is a big movement. It includes a lot of different people who probably have a lot of different motivations, and so uh, you can't rule all of these things out. But as we're going to see shortly, there's there's also just a lot of evidence that that suggests they're pretty serious about it. Like when someone like Sam, Sam Bankman-Fried changes his career path uh, because of what a the advice that a philosopher gives him. Uh, that's that's something serious, and uh, you know he probably someone like Bankman Fried could probably be uh, a lot more popular with a certain set of people if he were giving money to you know put his name on a Stanford dorm or if he were uh, helping support the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra, but he's not, and so why not? The other strain of diagnosis that you get is interestingly different because it doesn't suppose that they're being duplicitous or cynical. It calls them utopian or idealistic, or they're committing some kind of hubris. And this is often packaged with the criticism that they're behaving like a religious cult. Uh, an observation that you made earlier, Elon, which is, uh, uh, we're not the only ones to say that. They're, you know, when you look at a movement where you're asked to give away the bulk of your fortune and you're asked to tithe and you're asked to uh, uh, not criticize other effective altruists, and it, it does, and there's a prophet, Caskell's their prophet, it does kind of look like a religious cult. And the diagnosis that's often given here is these people foolishly believe that they can live an uncompromising life according to their moral ideal. Uh, which, when you think about it, though, is a, a strange criticism, because if an ideal really is morally admirable, why wouldn't you want to live with it consistently? Why would you want to compromise it? And why would you regard someone as uh, less than admirable for doing that? So there's something 
interesting about this last criticism because it betrays the fact that no, these effective altruists, or at least many of them, actually do seem rather serious about it. And the problem that this last view takes is, well, the problem is that they're being serious about the ideal, not that there's a problem with the ideal itself. But Elon, that's exactly the question I think that we should we should pursue. Is, yeah. is it maybe the ideal itself? Yeah, I, this is the point I was hoping to to get to from the beginning in planting that seed about how, think about what it means for you to try this earning to give model, just as one concrete thing that effective altruism would encourage you to do or this particular strain of it. I think this connects to Ayn Rand's really insightful analysis of what altruism is. And part of what she argues is that it is fundamentally misunderstood. It, most people think of it as a superficial, they have a, at best a superficial view. And there's also a reluctance to think deeply about it for a number of reasons we can get into. But the, the superficial view is the idea that it's, it's basically about benevolence towards other people and being nice. And maybe it involves a significant uh, donation to charity, you, you throw a beggar some money in the street, but and that means you're an altruistic person, you're a nice person, uh, you don't take advantage of people. But this is nothing like what altruism actually is. I think this is a big part of her, uh, an argument she was making for uh, in many places, including in, in Atlas Shrugged and in her nonfiction writings. That is a false characterization. It brings together things that don't go together. In fact, she she claims that benevolence does not flow from altruism. It's incompatible with being an altruist, which is to, just to plant a seed for people to go and explore that. In fact, altruism is a doctrine that tells you that fundamentally, it's not about being nice to people. It's about facing your own identity, facing your own self. It's the, the etymological root of it is otherism, but, it, but that's actually a, a useful way to think of it, which is you're oriented to other people. The advice it gives you is if it serves other people, it's good. If it serves you, it is not good. It is wrong. You shouldn't do it. And so think of it as fundamentally non-self oriented, but it gets worse because it's not just don't think about yourself. It's give away what values you have. If, if it's something that benefits you, you shouldn't keep it. You should sacrifice, you should give it away. And it, what it actually endorses and, and guides you to do is to seek net losses in your life. And, and so that you can see how this is, an, so the to go back to the idea of earning to give, that is, a, is a, an exact fit with what her analysis of altruism actually means. It's stripped away from the, some of the superficial misunderstandings that people have. This is what this is compatible with what it actually means. It's like you should go into a career you hate, even if you hate it, so long as what you're doing is maximizing some outcome that serves other people. And now there's there's some of this is coming from the ultra the utilitarian view and so on, but the essential issue here is that you're acting in a non-self-oriented way. In fact, you're, you're sacrificing what is so important to you. Now, I, I have trouble really processing it, so I'm gonna <laughs> stop me if I'm getting too far into this topic, Ben, but this whole idea that career is such an important thing, this earning to give, 
I still want to underscore how self-sacrificial it actually means. It actually is to take this seriously. Most of your waking life, you're thinking and, and creating and working. Now, you might not work all hours of your day, but it's, it's on your mind and it's a big part of who you are. Most of your life involves investing in your career and your work. And what this doctrine is telling you is do it, but not for any kind of benefit to yourself. That is really corrupt. It is fundamentally corrupt. And I, one of the things that struck me is, as uh, in reading about long-term effective altruism is it actually helps in the sense that it helps people understand what Ayn Rand was saying for many years, which is this is what altruism actually looks like. It, it sort of makes, it lays bare the essence of this doctrine precisely because of what it tells you. It's like, go think about people you'll never meet None of your descendants will ever meet them. It's thousands of years in the future. And some of these uh, scenarios involve non-human humans and sort of weird scenarios. That is just the an extension of this doc, this ideal, to uh, an extent which I think it, it's compatible with it. So it, it's don't think of it as crazy. It's the idea. It's it, this. It, don't um, hesitate to impugn the ideal, which is the point you were starting to raise earlier. So walk us through how this comes up in McCaskill's work, for example. Yeah, before I say that, say that, I'll just mention that, you know, for years, ever since Ayn Rand began critiquing altruism, the common criticism, especially from philosophers, was this is a straw man. There's no one who really thinks that altruism means self-sacrifice, uh, without regard for any of one's own interests. And, you know, the, the earliest answer you could give was, well, what about Kant, who advocates something quite like that in certain passages? And then there were questions about it. Are we interpreting him right? Well, then comes, then comes Peter Singer, who advocates earning to give. And he becomes, for many years now, my go-to example of, no, this is exactly what Ayn Rand is talking about. And now we get the children of Peter Singer, in effect, the, the long-termists, who take his idea to its real logical extent, to the point where even Singer uh, disavows some of the things that they say. But it's interesting to see the logic of how that happens. And it all comes from a common core idea that all of these thinkers share. And here I quote directly from the beginning of McCaskill's book, morality in central part is about putting ourselves in others' shoes and treating their interests as we do our own. Now, this is a very, this isn't just the effect of altruists talking. This is, this is a common view about what the basic essential subject of morality is shared by many, many moral philosophers. Uh, Singer takes that idea and he says, well, look, if morality is about treating all these other people and treating their interests as we do our own, uh, well, then if you see a drowning child in front of you, you, of course, everybody will recognize you should you know, endure the mild inconvenience of getting your pants wet and saving that child's life. But if there are starving children overseas who are also dying, the fact that they are far away from you in time, in space, that's a morally irrelevant fact. After all, proximity to you and your interests, that's not what the subject of morality is. And so the fact that they're very far away from you, that you don't know these starving children, that's no reason for you not to care just as much about them as you do about the starving, about the drowning child in the pond. And that's where you get the idea, no, we need to give away lots of our money to, you know, for the sake of famine relief. 
Well, McCaskill just does Singer one better. And he says, if distance in space is morally irrelevant because proximity to the self is not what's important, well, then what about distance and time? Distance and time should be morally irrelevant as well. Uh, after all, who are these, uh, these critics of long-termism who say you should be worrying about people in the here and now? Well, what's so special about the here and now? That's where we live. That's where the self lives. Wouldn't you all agree that the self is not something that's uh, primary moral significance? Of course you would. So if you're truly concerned with morality you, and you truly uh, believe that morality is about others, distance and time and space are irrelevant. And as it happens, most of the people who are ever going to be exist in the future. Uh, and here there's one more interesting philosophical story to tell about uh, a philosopher who is the common source of really both McCaskill's uh, and Singer's ideas. And this is a name that doesn't get brought up quite as much in discussions about this, but I think it's important to surface his name. And that's uh, uh, the late Derek Parfit, who was an Oxford philosopher who died just a few years ago. Uh, he, in his later years, was uh, uh, happy to get on board the effective altruist movement because it resonated with so many ideas that he had preached for many decades prior, including to his students, his graduate student, William McCaskill. Uh, Parfit does a number of things in his work. One of them is to defend the idea that you need to measure uh, the impact of your actions according to the total amount of happiness that they affect, which is very relevant to the development of long-termism because it's very much the total amount of people in the future that they are cared about. But what's I think even more interesting is the kind of argument that Parfit gives for the, all of the kinds of altruism that he argues for. It, it, it comes for Parfit from a certain view of personal identity. He has the idea, there is no real, there is no real self, not in the sense of an entity that endures in a significant way over time. This is sort of the David Hume, this is the Buddhist view. Uh, all we have is a, a collection of experiences and they are more or less continuous with one another. And if that's the case, then when you are working hard and studying and learning and planning for a future career, the person who you're going to be in 20 years, let's say, well, that's not really the same person. You're not going to be that person 20 years from now. And so Parfit's argument is when you're working prudentially planning for your future, what you're doing really is a kind of sacrifice for a future person, for a person who is not you. And if we think that it is morally important for you to do that, then you see uh, the same kinds of reasons that we have for sacrificing for our future selves are just as easily and even more obviously going to apply to reasons we have to sacrifice for the people who we usually regard as other people, uh, whether they are in the, uh, the present or in the future. And for Parfit, when you boil this down to where does this ultimately come from, what is it that makes us think we have any kind of moral obligation at all to anything or to anyone? For him, it's just what he regards as an intuitive axiom that you should treat your interests, that you should treat the interests of other people as equal to your own. It's, he takes it as, as virtually uh, self-evident, as though this is a proposition of mathematics, uh, a revealed truth, as though we open our eyes and see it. 
uh, although we don't see it with our eyes, we see it with the eye of our mind. And that's where this all comes from. That's where McCaskill or Singer, where Parfit all come from, just this conviction that you have to treat it as self-evident that morality is about basically sacrificing for other people. No argument is given. Uh, they don't think an argument can be given for this. And this is, this is in the explicit philosophic text. This isn't something that they're hiding. Uh, this is in spite of the fact that the history of philosophy and history of ethics is filled with many views that do not accept this axiom as uh, self-evident, let alone as true. If you go to ancient Greece, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle would not have recognized this as what the subject of ethics was. They would have said, no, ethics is about figuring out the virtues that we need to live to have an excellent character, to flourish, to achieve eudaimonia, which sometimes includes other people, but not always, and certainly doesn't include future generations, let alone digital beings. And so, I mean, my argument is that the reason that the effective altruists, the reason that people like Parfit think this is a self-evident truth is because they have accepted a culturally popular attitude, which ultimately they have inherited from religion because the major historical development between ancient Greece and the various 19th century philosophers who get this utilitarian idea going is the development of Christian morality, which is very different from Greek morality, which says, no, there is a virtue in humility, uh, in abandoning pride, in, in submitting yourself to a higher power. Now, of course, it's true that Parfit, Singer, McCaskill, they're all secular, they're all atheists. They don't think they should submit themselves to a God unless you count those future digital beings. Uh, but they still very much accept hook, line, and sinker that the, the overall Christian conception of morality as submission to some kind of higher power. They just swap out what the higher power is. It's not God, it's, it's future generations that we should basically bow down, submit to, and worship. And so even though this is a philosophy that says, no, there's been lots of ineffective altruism in the past. It's been too sentimental, too driven by emotions. We need to be rational. We need to be calculating, figure out the best way to achieve the greatest amount of good. What they regard as the greatest good, the maximization of total happiness, and their reason for thinking that we should care about it at all and sacrifice for the sake of it, ultimately comes down to an item of faith, an article of faith uh, that's, that's no better uh, than articles of uh, faith of uh, various religious moralities that they ordinarily wouldn't associate themselves with. And to me, that is the ultimate philosophical bankruptcy of this movement, that at the end of the day, when you try to cash out this account, see uh, what it's built on, uh, what its assets are, at the bottom of the books, what you find is this empty, baseless item of faith, uh, not too different from what happened when they did the forensic accounting uh, for FTX's cryptocurrency. Ben, I want to talk about the way this connects with Ayn Rand's analysis of altruism as a, an anti-morality. It's, it's not a, a guide to life. So if the, the ancient Greek conception of morality is it's to help you understand yourself and understand the world and guide yourself through it towards some end. So it's, a, it's an action guiding uh, uh, body of knowledge. In effect, altruism doesn't give you real guidance that you can live by. It, it gives you direction what not to do. Don't serve yourself, serve other people. But that doesn't really help you in practice when you have a lot, all sorts of questions. I want to get to that. But one, one observation I had in listening to your uh, argument 
what do you think about the the similar is there a similarity here with putting this the you know the the goal of you're going to serve 10,000 generations from now and maximize their happiness so it's it's a the value is in their accord basically and the idea in religion that you're serving god the, the, the sort of disembodied value it's it's impersonal it's not you um am i am i just fishing in the dark here is there is there anything kind of commonality here or, or is it just a coincidental feature i'm not sure i quite frame the question right but do you see what i'm getting at yeah, there's definitely a commonality, both for the reasons that I mentioned already, and, and then I think also for the reason that you've just brought up, which is the the way in which altruistic, altruistic morality simply does not give you real guidance in life. And so one place you see that in religious morality, which is a form of self-sacrifice, is religious morality consists of a list of commandments, thou shalt and thou shalt nots. And the thou shalt nots are usually, it's usually a lot longer list than the thou shalts. There are various ways in which there's uh, offense taken against God. And the thou shalts are various ways of showing your honor and uh, showing your devotion. But there's very little guidance then given for the rest of life about what is it to seek a meaningful friendship? How do you choose a career? Uh, what kind of character do you, do you want to develop? there's there's nothing there and likewise i think with with effective altruism there's 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 causes that you can contribute to there's uh there's some kind of career advice they can give as long it doesn't really matter what you're doing as long as you make a lot of money um uh but then there's there's as we'll see a uh, a stepping back from concern for what kinds of values and virtues do you need to live to live a happy life or, or, or to live a, a good life with other people even. So let's, let's turn to that issue of the way in which um, altruism and morality, I think are at odds. And this is part of Rand's analysis. Um, in the days since Sam Bankman fried had his downfall and the, there's been a lot of public soul searching on the part of people like McCaskill. And he, I will pick on him because he went on Twitter to in effect disavow his student, uh, the person he led into this career. And there's a long Twitter thread people can find where he goes out of his way to quote from his own book to say, this is not what I meant. Don't, don't take him as representing my ideas. If he did that and he, I'm sorry, but this is not what I meant. I, I don't mean for people to go and become uh, uh, criminals if that's indeed what he did, which is an interesting phenomenon. He, he clearly has a guilty conscience or he, he's carrying some questions about his own responsibility for what happened. Uh, and, and I think it's, it makes for interesting reading. One of the things he says is that his doc, his, so I think this comes from his books that the guidance he gives is, bounded by what he says is common sense morality. And that's something that, um, I, I, I don't know if it's quite a term of art, but it, it, it has this sort of uh, phrase that keeps po popping up. Um, so don't take it to mean that you can do anything, that whatever uh, um, ends you think you're, you're pursuing, they don't justify the means here. So don't, don't take that. There should be some common sense limits to what you should do. So don't, don't be bad in effect. 
So let me ask you a bit about what is meant here by common sense morality and, and how compatible is it with what he's actually arguing? And this is a problem that has bedeviled the various utilitarian theories of morality uh, since their inception uh, hundreds of years ago, which is, I mean, people were always able to think up thought experiments to test the theory uh, that involved this problem. Like if you think that the most important thing to do is to achieve the greatest good for the greatest number of people, greatest total happiness, well, what if you uh, start uh, harvesting people's kidneys uh, against their will to save more lives? Uh, what if you're the sheriff of a small town and the mob is at your door and they demand justice and you don't know who, did, who committed a crime and so you sacrifice an innocent person to appease the mob? These are the standard kinds of examples. And so, utilitarians have devised one or another kind of answer to this basically by saying, well, uh, if it turns out that following uh, what you might call rules of thumb of, of common sense morality are actually what generate the greatest good in the long run, then you should actually follow these principles of morality. But now, of course, the justification there is still with reference to the the greatest happiness. They are not regarded as a as a means to the end primarily of your own happiness uh, or any other kinds of constraints. And so you know, one consequence of this is that, and this has been pointed out by other philosophical critics of McCaskill reading his thread, that uh, even McCaskill's got to know that according to his own philosophy, there are all kinds of exceptions that you would be justified in making to the normal common sense moral principles. Uh, you know, if the murderer comes to the door and says, where's your friend, uh, the utilitarian is going to say, you lie to him. Uh, utilitarians are going to justify even more than that most of the time. So they'll say, yes, rules of common sense morality is a kind of rule of thumb, but it's not an exceptionless one. And if the ultimate standard is the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, uh, there are all kinds of reasons why you might end up dropping those rules when it's really, really obvious uh, that you can achieve the greatest good. So hard to know uh, what that would mean for a complex financial scheme where you're not necessarily lying to people, but where you're just really gambling a lot of money that, of theirs. But it's, it's, it's too pat. It's much too simplistic to say, no, this is not the way an effective altruist would behave, especially because of the fact both McCaskill and, and Bankman-Fried are these long-termists who think the future is so large and who thinks that's where so many people are going to be. And they, that several chapters of McCaskill's book are concerned with saying, we live in a pivotal pivotal uh, period in history where the decisions we're making now are going to be entrench our values over the course of millennia in the future. And we must act now to change this. When you raise the stakes that high and you attach so much importance to this greater total happiness that has nothing to do with yourself, it's, it's, it's a lot harder to explain why what Bankman-Fried was doing was wrong. I want to pick up on a thread from a little bit earlier where you made the case that the philosophers who have led to what is now effective altruism, the ones that are now active today, in the end, what justifies their claim is an act of faith or, or an intuition, as they might, might put it. And in your case was that this is in the end rooted in the influence of religion, which is the dominant source of uh, self-sacrificial morality. So I want to tie that to Ayn Rand's view of sacrifice as a moral 
view. And she, so she regards it as, as wrong and evil and destructive and always destructive. There's never a justified sacrifice. And part of her view is that there has never been a rational justification for a doctrine of self-sacrifice. And that in the end, what you often find is that it, it's rooted in some sort of religious or faith-based, it's, it's a leap, it, it's a subjective uh, demand that you must do this. There's no rational case for it. So it's an irrational goal to tell people that you must sacrifice for future generations or for the proletariat or for these beings that are gonna exist somewhere in the galaxy uh, trillions of years from now. And so, so it's an irrational goal. And the other thing that I think is one other aspect of her analysis that I think is really worth drawing out as thinking about effective, I, I, I stumble over every time I say effective altruism because it doesn't make sense to me. It's just that there's something really uh, distortive about that. But let me, let me put that aside. So this doctrine tells us, as you were saying just now that, yeah, you, there are these boundaries that you shouldn't cross. Okay, well, but taking seriously the idea of sacrifice, and I think this is part of her analysis that I wanted to bring up. This is an irrational goal, and you are saying that sacrifice is justified for whatever irrational basis you have. Well, isn't this really a license to any and every kind of morality, immorality that human beings can imagine. So why, why is, what is the boundary here? There isn't really one. If you're, if you're licensing sacrifice as a moral claim, really this is an anti-moral position. You're telling people, go ahead and do it if you can say there's some higher end to which you, that you're serving. Uh, and, and of course, this is what a lot of uh, evil regimes have done in the history. So, so there's, there's definitely something really warped here. So those are just a couple of aspects that occurred to me as relevant to thinking about this issue. I think it'd be worth talking more about Rand's analysis uh, of morality and how altruism conflicts with it. But I noticed there's, did you wanna take a question that has come up? I, I see, okay, let me see what the question is. I think is. we should take the question later, but we should definitely come back to one of the questions that's come up. Okay, okay so uh, let's talk more about Ayn Rand's view here and then come back to that question. Yeah, so- Let me throw it back to you, so to, go ahead. I think this is a good opportunity to draw people's attention uh, to an essay that Rand wrote, uh, which is not one of her uh, best known essays, in part because it wasn't reprinted in any of the anthologies, but it's sort of a perfect one to discuss because it thinks about the morality of altruism in using an analogy to a financial collapse, which is exactly what we're talking about today. And it's not just an analogy. She, she says there's a connection. This is her essay, Moral Inflation. Uh, we'll give uh, some details on how to find that essay later. But in this essay, she, she compares altruism to inflated currency, that it, 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 it's a form of inflated morality in the sense that it empties morality of any kind of meaningful guidance in just the kind of way that we've we've been talking about. Uh, here are some of the kinds of examples of this that she gives in the essay. She she talks about how uh, it 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 often de-emphasizes the finding of fault that uh, you shouldn't be judging other people. You should just be interested in fixing problems and you can't go back and change things that happened in the past. Just look at the effects of your action. Uh, 
of course, sometimes it can actually be helpful to uh, guide your action to know whose fault it is so that you know whether or not to interact with them, but they're not so concerned with that. Uh, for it, or for instance, altruistic, altruistic morality is very much focused on inducing guilt in people who fail to live up to its demands. Uh, and as especially when you uh, think about what, morality, what altruism really demands, it demands sacrifice without any limits, which then makes it impossible to live up to that and makes guilt necessary and makes it seem like there's no real positive values that you can achieve. This is then related to its embrace of humility, uh, which implies that moral perfection is not possible. Uh, and that makes you wonder, well, why do I really need morality? And this is part of the reason, I think, by the way, why people think that, uh, why people have these cynical attitudes toward it, why they think uh, idealism is foolish, why they end up becoming pragmatists. And even while they say, yes, this, I, this is good in theory, but it's not good in practice, I think that's at the heart of that utopianism critique. Uh, and that's, again, coming from the fact that they don't, that altruistic, altruistic morality doesn't give guidance that's actually achievable. Uh, and a consequence of that is that the people who try best to live up to it, the ones who give the most, uh, they're never really uh, regarded as having achieved perfection. They're just asked to sacrifice more. And when there is not, it's when it's not obvious what more they need to be doing, altruists go in search of forms of suffering uh, that still need to be catered to. And I'll, I'll give examples of how this applies to the current situation, especially with regard to effective altruism in a moment. But uh, I thought it would also be useful to put up on screen what I think is the, um, the money quote, if you will, of uh, from this essay, uh, Moral Inflation, which really draws out the, the parallels uh, between the phenomena. If a country's professed moral values are false, it may survive and stumble on for a while, not too happily, so long as, and to the extent that those values are ignored in practice. But if you attempt to put such values into wide circulation, if you infuse them into a country's practical politics and saturate its culture, you set in motion a process of moral inflation. The more a country pursues those values, the greater its moral lethargy, the more you accelerate the printing presses of the spirit, the worse the drain on the country's moral energy. You do not achieve a reign of virtue. You merely debase morality and drive the public into a state of bitterly cynical despair. Today, we are witnessing the burst of the balloon of altruism, which was being inflated for centuries. Yet our public leaders keep cursing the sins of ambition, ability, and selfishness as the cause of our plight and demanding more sacrifices as the cure. If you don't see that as applicable to uh, today's controversy and scandal, I, I can't help you. It's, it's, it's so clear cut because what you, what you see happening with something like the effective altruist movement is, is precisely taking this idea that people have ignored and uh, trying to infuse it into a country's practical politics, saturate and trying to saturate its culture. And you get the very moral inflation that she's talking about. So for example, we've already talked about how there's not that much actual practical life guidance that you get from effective altruism. You get a list of charities, you get a way to make lots of money, uh, you're not told about uh, whether you should, uh, you know, who you should choose your relationships, what kind of careers would be good for you to pick. Uh, I, could, I can go into further details, but uh, you, that, that's a consequence of their making the focus of morality this, distance, this distant future as opposed to uh, how, what's a good way to live this life now. It's part of the reason why I think 
the common, so-called common sense moral principles, honesty and integrity become this kind of afterthought that McCaskill has to remind his followers about. Uh, and the point that you can never really do enough, that you can never really sacrifice enough. I mean, my go-to example of this is we put up on screen earlier that book by Singer, Famine, Affluence and Morality. Well, that's an essay he wrote back in the 70s, but they reissued it maybe uh, five, seven years ago. And who writes the preface for the book, recommending that more people read it, but Bill Gates. Bill Gates says, this is the view of morality that I find the most appealing, the one that I try to live up to. And Bill Gates indeed has, has donated millions upon millions of dollars to various philanthropic efforts, often many of the very kind that someone like Peter Singer recommends. What does Peter Singer do in this very book? He uses Gates as an example of someone who has too much money, who doesn't sacrifice enough. He shouldn't live in his mansion. He shouldn't have his Leonardo da Vinci codex. And this is, a, this is, this is something that Gates sanctions and recommends. Gates can never do enough to satisfy Singer, not even give up millions and write a preface to his, his damn book. So uh, this, this is what makes morality uh, look pretty irrelevant to everyday life if there's no amount that you can do ever to live up to that code. And I think one of the things that is particularly interesting about the progression uh, in these various altruistic theories, moving from standard altruism to effective altruism to long-termism, is the last point of Rand's that I mentioned, the fact that when you can't find enough suffering, you go looking for more of it to sacrifice for the sake of, because that's that's exactly what's happened uh, in the movement from effective altruism generically to long-termism. One of the things that's interesting about the long-termists is in spite of their left-wing politics, they will often look around the world and say, yeah, things are, things are doing better than people 30 years thought they were going to be. There's been a lot of human progress. Markets have actually generated a lot of wealth. Uh, even the environmental concerns uh, that the, the where the environmentalists worry about apocalypses 30 years down the road. The long-termists say, yeah, it might happen, but we can probably deal with it. What we really need to worry about is, the, is artificial intelligence thousands of years from now. And so that's exactly that movement of, yeah, we're, we're running out of ammunition for things for people to sacrifice to in the world around us today because things are getting better. Well, I guess we better go in search of suffering in the future that people need to be worried about. And that's, that's really the, the ultimate inflation of, of their morality. And so this is bound to blow up in their faces. And I think it has to some extent, but there's still a lot of work to do. Yeah, so one of the threads throughout conversation today has been that people simply don't understand altruism. They, they have much too generous a view of it. It's a rosy picture of what altruism means. It's something sugar-coated. It's being nice to people. The analysis from Rand and that you've been building on here is the value really is sacrifice. The goal is sacrifice. Because if you can't find enough people in the present, you go searching for others to sacrifice for, and to, then you get to the long-termist perspective, which includes some of these weird scenarios where what if we invented these other human consciousnesses on us, some sort of matrix scenario, and then we would have to serve them and their infinite number of, it's just, it's bizarre. And there was a conversation we had before we got on uh, the, the podcast where you told me about this 
poll that you took of your students when you were teaching ethics. Tell, tell us about that, because I think that connects directly to the way people misunderstand or, or refuse to get the full picture of what's involved here with altruism. Yeah, for many years, when I was a university philosophy professor, I would teach uh, the topic of effective altruism by teaching Singer's essay, uh, where he makes that connection between the child in the pond and the starving person around the planet. And one of the one of Singer's virtues is that he's a he's a very clear writer, and he even numbers the premises of his argument and sets out the logic of it very neatly so that you can see how his conclusion derives from his premises. Now, of course, if uh, you have the perspective that we've had today, you, you start to see what's wrong with some of the premises. But as stated, the premises are exactly the conventional view of morality, that morality is about putting other people's interests equal to your own, no matter how many others are there. And what I would do typically when I would teach this is I would take that argument and I would ask this, I would use one of these electronic polling systems where you get students to use clickers, uh, yes or no, and you get the results in real time on a graph that shows up on screen. And I would always ask them, so do you agree with this premise of the argument about what morality is? And, and universally, vast majority of the students would say yes. And then I would ask them about the conclusion, which follows logically from the premise. Do you agree with this? And the overwhelming majority would say, no, I, I shouldn't be giving away you know, all of my income for people I don't know. I should help out my friends and my family. And, and then I would ask him, yeah, but what, do you, what about Singer's argument that says there's this logical connection between this premise and this conclusion? Mm. And they, they didn't have an answer. And I think, that's, I think that's representative of the kind of, of the conventional thinking on this topic, which is that everyone regards that altruistic premise as common sense, as, uh, as, as self-evidently true inherited from the gods. Uh, no one thinks to challenge it, but then they don't want to deal with the fact that it has the implications that it has. And so they come up with ways to evade that these are in fact the implications. Uh, evasions like, uh, well, you, you, you gotta be practical. You, 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 you can't be too idealistic. You don't wanna be utopian. Uh, you've gotta compromise your, you know, your, your interest in morality with something else. But well, what is morality except for the set of principles that you think are right to follow? So they, I think it's there's a lot of evasion on this subject where people don't realize that these are that the effective altruist view is the is the direction that the the core essence of the thoughts of their their own thinking about morality would lead them if they were to take it seriously. Yeah, this is one of the challenging and, and I think illuminating points, one of many uh, in Rand's analysis of altruism, which is and it's hard for people to to really grapple with, which is she is she has no illusions about what altruism is. And part of what she's challenging people to do is to question their own assumptions about it. And, and her, her view is that it, it, it's a mistake to think that it's about sacrificing for some actual end. It's about sacrifice. And that's the, that's the core of the focus. Uh, it's your you're under an illusion if you think there's some benefit here. It's not about benefits to anybody. It's just about loss, about net losses. And in and for many of the reasons you mentioned earlier in the discussion, it's important to recognize that this is 
So just to put uh, in a nutshell the point that you've been developing, it's destructive to human life because it pushes for sacrifice. It's destructive to people precisely because it preys on the best within them, which is to want to do good, is their idealism. So the more idealistic you are about this, the more it's going to ruin you. And for people who can't tolerate it, it pushes them away from morality altogether. And that's the point you were making. I took it as this, this idea of being pragmatist, which is this philosophy that regards principles and abstract guidance as irrelevant to life and that you shouldn't follow it. And it's the, it's the epitome of corner cutting and do what you need in the moment. And so it's destructive to people in, in both directions, coming and going, whether you, you try to live by it and whether you reject it. And in both directions, you're left guideless, without any guidance. And in fact, this is, uh, it is not surprising. This goes to the sort of culture point that she makes in moral inflation. It's, you can see it playing out in a culture. It's really corrosive to the individual, it's corrosive to society, it's corrosive to human relationships. So there's nothing good about it. It's, it's always deadly to have altruism pervading a society. Um, so I, I know you wanted to get back. There was a question you flagged. I'm sorry I disturbed the train of thought earlier, but do you want to go to that now? Yeah. Uh, so someone in the YouTube chat, I don't know if they're still watching, but they asked what I think is a very reasonable question, which is how are you, and I hear the you is us, those who are speaking, how are you different from utilitarians? Where do you derive your moral constraints and prescriptions from? I think that's an excellent question. We can't answer it fully today, but let me at least try to give a few indications and, um, and, and we'll mention maybe some resources. But I think where you begin is exactly where the effective altruists didn't think to look. They said, basically, we can't find any facts in natural, observable, scientifically accessible reality that relate to questions of values. And so we have to just go with all we have, which is this intuition about what feels right to do. Uh, and they didn't think about where that feeling might have actually come from, uh, culturally speaking. I think it came from religion. I think you have to be fully scientific. You have to think about, well, what, what facts in reality, in observable natural reality are there that could give us reason to think about questions about good and bad, questions about right and wrong. And the, the first place to look, I think, is the facts about, about the nature of life, that, that living species uh, are unique and distinctive uh, as opposed to inanimate matter insofar as to maintain their existence. They, and they face a constant struggle between existence and non-existence. There are certain courses of action they need to follow. And it makes sense to call those things the good things, the things that are good for their life. When it comes to human beings, we have to figure that out. We aren't born knowing it. We don't have instincts. And so we have to figure out what is good for our life and therefore what makes for the right and the wrong choices that we can make. Uh, that is, I think, the, the scientific basis for morality. It's a, it's a basis that Ayn Rand identifies and argues for in her essay, The Objectivist Ethics. This is a podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. You can search uh, our channel and our publication, New Ideal, for many more leads and uh, developments and what that means and where that comes from. It's something we spent a lot of time talking about elsewhere. But it's a good question to ask, what's the alternative? And I think the basic alternative is uh, look for an actually scientifically demonstrable code of morality that doesn't have to rely on intuitions, that relies instead on observable facts about human beings and their nature and what it takes to survive. 
And I think that was the most important question that we should address. I don't think we have time for the others. We're going to be doing Clubhouse afterwards, uh, where some people can maybe raise some of these other questions that have come in. There have been a lot that have come in. And um, we should at least uh, say thank you uh, to, I know one super chat came in from Jeff. Thank you, Jeff, for that super chat. Uh, and uh, hopefully you can join us for uh, for Clubhouse later. But Elon, do you want to start to to wrap up? Yeah, so as you were saying, you'll, I think you'll be in Clubhouse with people listening. I think we're live streaming through there. and Ben will join if you have questions. You can pick up some that weren't answered here live. A couple of resources to share with you that we've mentioned. So the article that Ben was discussing, Moral Inflation, it appears in the Ayn Rand letter, which was a periodical that she published. And you can get a copy of that. If you are an ARI member, a supporter of our institute, we published, uh, we reprinted it in our quarterly magazine for donors it's called Ayn Rand Today. And you can get a copy of that. If you are a member, just be in touch with us. Or if you want to become a member, we'd love your support. You can go to aynrand.org slash donate. The other place to find it is the, the Ayn Rand letter, which is available in a bound periodical a hardcover, which is available through ARI's e-store, which you can find online. We'll put the links in the show notes. Highly recommend that. Now, it's wonderful to get the bound periodicals of all three of her publications, The Objectivist, Objectivist Newsletter, and The Ayn Rand Letter. For anyone who wants to really delve into Ayn Rand's ideas, there's no substitute for reading everything she wrote. And a good place to start is to read those periodicals cover to cover. So I highly recommend for those of you listening who are um, super motivated, that's the place to go. The other uh, resource that we mentioned a few times was the podcast that you did, Ben, with some of our colleagues about William McCaskill's book, which is titled uh, why McCaskill is wrong about what we owe the future, which is a play on the title of his book. You can find that on our channel. There's a short link on the screen. And uh, I can mention that next time we'll be back with another topic. My colleague Ankar uh, Gate and I will be here to talk about a couple of big stories in the news. One of them is the release of the basketball player, Brittany Griner. And the other one is uh, Elon Musk, uh, his ownership of Twitter and the implications for free speech. I think we're going to have a kind of edited roundtable uh, roundup of some of those big stories and their philosophical implications. So that's everything for today. If you are watching us, we'd love you to send uh, comments or questions or suggestions. We have a Q&A coming up on objectivism. It'll be focused on religion and God. If you have questions on that, January 13, send your questions by email, newideal at ironryan.org. You can do that for other topics, but we highly encourage you to send us your questions on those topics. We'd love to get uh, your thoughts on that. And as always, if you're listening online and watching us on social platforms, please like, comment, subscribe, become part of our channel. We'd love to increase the reach of what we do and doing and your subscription and liking and so forth help us do that. And if you're subscribed, you'll get notifications of when we go live as well. So I think that's everything for this week. We will be back next time and Ben will be joining you all uh, on Clubhouse. Thanks. Thanks, Ilan. I'll see everyone soon. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org 
forward slash membership.